everyone. This is Jim Hughes with Affio Now. We present a program of uh, recorded presentations and interviews with senior U.S. intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. Uh, today, I have a very special guest. His name is David Robarge. Uh, David is the CIA historian, and he works for the Center for Studies and in Intelligence. And today, he's going to talk about uh, counterintelligence. David? Welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim, and uh, welcome to all those viewing. It's a pleasure to be here for the first time. And I'd like to start by briefly talking about the Center for the Study of Intelligence. This is the CIA's uh, think tank, uh, if you want to identify it as a kind of a conceptual notion. It's a place where since 1974, the agency has had scholars and officers come in and analyze and reflect upon various elements of U.S. intelligence, not just CIA, but also the community, all aspects of intelligence. Yeah, they produce products, uh, films. Uh, we run a website. We have a, a very robust internal and external presentation schedule. Uh, this is one of those. And uh, we encourage anybody interested in finding out more about uh, the center and the agency's history and community history and the whole range of activities that uh, the center engages in to visit our uh, website at cia.gov. You'll find the Center for the Study of Intelligence has a very hefty section within that website. Most of the material there is historical, but the center also engages in reflections on recent events through its Lessons Learned program. It has an emerging trends program that looks at dynamics and developments in the private, cultural, social, and governmental sectors and how they affect intelligence. We have the CIA Museum that you can tour virtually on CIA.gov. And of course, we put out the Intelligence Community Journal, Studies in Intelligence, uh, every quarter. So this morning, I'm going to be talking about some of the general themes in counterintelligence, which tends historically to get a kind of a backseat until problems arise, which I would contend is really the wrong way to run counterintelligence. You need to have a kind of a combination of defensive and offensive activities. Historically, we've erred more on the side of defense rather than offense. We're getting better in recent history. But I'd like to share with you some of the overall conceptions of counterintelligence, uh, aspects of tradecraft, and a few of the major themes that have characterize the history of counterintelligence over the years. I'm going to be running through a slideshow here, and uh, I'll be a touch selective just in the interest of time. Some of the stories that um, I'd like to delve into in more detail, uh, perhaps we can do it another time. James Angleton, for example, deserves an entire session just on his own. What we want to look out at here in the Executive Order 12333 are all the various elements of counterintelligence that come together to make it such a vibrant and challenging uh, discipline. It's not just uh, spotting spies and hunting moles, which is the typical portrayal in the popular literature and in movies, but really an aggregate of a variety of efforts to, as the EO says here, identify, deceive, exploit, disrupt, and protect against espionage, intelligence activities, sabotage, or assassination by any hostile foreign entity, including terrorist groups or non-state actors. Now, within that kind of legalistic language, you can see that counterintelligence comprises a 
various elements that really all work together ideally to protect us from intelligence attack and enable us to launch our own intelligence attacks and conduct our own operations elsewhere in the world securely. Counterespionage is the mole hunting, the spy spotting, the spy hunting that we and the FBI work in coordination uh, to accomplish. But that, as I said, is largely a defensive enterprise, and that's largely what most elements of the intelligence community do beyond simple security is try to figure out if an information compromise is a result of penetration or some kind of a bad tradecraft or communication lapse. But again, you're waiting there for the problem to arise and then trying to track it down. What you need to do ultimately to protect yourself against penetration is to penetrate the enemy. Recruit sources in those services has always been the best way to find out what they're trying to do against you. Once you do that, you have identified their targets, their methodology, their assets. You know what they're looking for so you can protect it. You can, as the third uh, indicator is here, you can put out your own information that you want them to have through various means. And while you have all these insights into what the enemy is doing, it enables you to run your own operation securely. You know their tradecraft, how they work the streets, who their assets are, who their surveillance are, where to go and where not to go. And then you can also protect yourself from being deceived through dangles and double agents. You can validate your assets routinely and uh, aggressively and learn more about whether they are indeed being uh, played against you. So when you put all of these together, you find that counterintelligence really is a multifaceted discipline. Acquiring information about the adversary so you can analyze its tradecraft and run your own operation securely. Find out who the opposition's spies are and either neutralize them through law enforcement means or diplomatic means, or even better yet, from an intelligence standpoint, turn them into your own assets. Play the enemy against itself. Turn it inside out. Have it chase its own tail. Waste resources. Meanwhile, you're operating behind its back. Uh, and they don't know anything about it. And one way you can do that is to send out your own assets to penetrate the opposition by posing either as defectors or pretending to be recruited through a dangle operation. One thing I'd like to sort out right away is that the term double agent really gets misused in the popular discourse. Uh, Ames is a double agent. Hansen is a double agent. Penkovsky was a double agent. No, no, no. A double agent, if the term is to have any meaning, really needs to be applied simply solely to those two types of tradecraft techniques. And one way to keep this straight in your mind is through a, a syllogism. All double agents are penetrations, but not all penetrations are double agents. A penetration is a classic case like Kim Philby. Uh, described with his uh, other four uh, cohorts in My Cambridge Friends by their own KGB controller, uh, the famous Cambridge spy ring, portrayed fictionally by John le Carre and Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, Bill Hayden, Kim Philby. That's, those are simply a penetration, somebody who volunteered uh, or was recruited and then got a job inside the intelligence service and worked uh, deep within as a penetration. But the double agent term needs to be applied, I think, exclusively to two types of tradecraft, the playback and the dangle. The playback is, as the term suggests, 
spotting an enemy asset and flipping them, playing them back, turning them, whatever your jargon is. And then they become your asset working against the adversary and the adversary doesn't know it. They still think that person is bona fide working against you. Uh, a classic example is the double cross system <clears throat> that the British Security Service set up during World War II, in which it tracked down every known German agent inside the UK, turned them under threat of death, and used them as conduits for false reporting and disinformation back uh, to the German military. <clears throat> the uh, Dangle operation is the idea of code trailing, sending out somebody who's pretending to be recruitable for various reasons and letting them be recruited. Of course, you can only run that operation if you know who the people who are doing the recruiting are, which you find out sometimes through penetration, through surveillance, uh, through communications intercepts. But however you find that out, you play this uh, dangle game by putting somebody in front of a recruiter and having them be picked up and then suddenly you have a penetration who's finding out all about what the hostile service is doing, reporting back to you. So you can now protect your secrets because you know what they're after. <clears throat> you can run your operations in their territory <clears throat> more securely because uh, you know how they operate. And you can use this false recruit as a conduit for disinformation, sending the adversary down all sorts of false trails. Uh, one of David Wise's lesser known books, but I would strongly recommend it to all of you uh, AFIO readers, is Cassidy's Run, a great operation that the Army and the FBI ran together to deceive the Soviets on various WMD matters, in particular nerve gas. A very clever run for Cassidy, the senior sergeant in the Army who was doing the FBI's and the Army's uh, clandestine work. The false defector is a much tougher game to play because you lose control and access to the agent, especially if they wind up in a denied area. Better to have the defector operate in a kind of a neutral territory like Austria or Hong Kong or Istanbul, one of those you know, novelistic spy havens. Uh, but occasionally uh, you do it into hostile territory. Uh, a good portrayal of that is in the book by Henry Hurt there called Shadron. It deals with a a Soviet naval officer who defected to us went underground after he was uh, debriefed thoroughly and then was surfaced in an operation uh, the FBI contrived to send him back with all sorts of bogus information about U.S. military affairs. He had worked briefly as a contractor for DIA, so he had some bona fides. The problem here is that we lost physical control over him. The KGB kidnapped him and inadvertently uh, killed him. Nonetheless, it's a dynamic of the double agent uh, operation. And then if you put this in a military context, which goes all the way back to the days of the American Revolution with the false deserter, uh, the military personnel who deserts in quotes to the enemy carrying bogus information. Uh, a good example of this was the Iraqi American non-commissioned officer who uh, quote unquote deserted to Saddam during the first Gulf War with false information about how the activities of Desert Storm were going to run. It tricked Saddam into thinking the U.S. was, in characteristic fashion, going to do a hard charge up the middle, go through Kuwait City and up the Gulf. And as you know, it was the, uh, the Hail Mary operation uh, way out west, which was also backstopped with phony radio chatter and troop movements and things of that sort. Uh, these are all intended to show that the key to certain operations where you're using these 
uh, double agents is to trick the enemy into thinking something is going to happen uh, when it isn't. Uh, the Normandy invasion is a classic example of a, putting all of this together with, with physical communications and uh, human deception. And as you all know, it worked uh, brilliantly. Counterintelligence in American history has been an extremely difficult discipline to maintain uh, for any length of time. It also has a lot of internal uh, paradoxes and tensions that have made it uh, difficult to maintain uh, bureaucratically and politically over the long haul. As Richard Helms says here, it's hard to imagine going to work every day and fearing that your own agency has been penetrated uh, through hostile means. Uh, Paul Redmond points out correctly, however, that it always happened, has happened, uh, and will happen. Uh, we have never had a time in modern U.S. intelligence history when the intelligence community has not been multiply penetrated at any given time, including right now uh, as I'm speaking. One of the challenges for the professional counterintelligence officer is that it's largely a no-win enterprise. You never get credit for doing your work well, and you certainly get lots of recrimination uh, when you don't. As William Webster points out here, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't enterprise, which makes it very psychologically challenging and leads people sometimes to uh, decide that they simply don't want to get involved with it. Uh, you don't get credit uh, when you catch spies because it means you haven't protected yourself adequately. You don't know enough about the hostels to be able to fend them off. And if you don't catch the spies because you know they're there and always have been and always will be, that just shows that you don't know how to do your business. So you really cannot do uh, counterintelligence uh, any credit whether uh, you catch them or you don't. You can't have it both ways, Webster says, but that's the reality. That's the perception. A lot of that has to do with really the entire American political psyche. Uh, we are not inclined to be in the realm of a police state. We do have in our history occasional overreactions to internal security scares. We can think of the so-called red scares, uh, the period of time uh, also in the 60s when we were going after domestic radicals. And of course, after 9-11, a lot of counterterrorism, perhaps overreaction in certain respects. But the point is, uh, the Americans have never come up with a modulation about how much security they're willing to uh, accept, how many rights they're willing to have infringed to maintain some kind of consistency in counterintelligence and security. If you go through American history, you'll see that that concept goes like a sine curve. It waxes and wanes depending on domestic and international events. And that's been the problem with counterintelligence is having it brought in reactively and not used as a continuing weapon uh, of opportunity in the arsenal of U.S. intelligence. So quoting James Angleton here, uh, it's just something that we have to live with and try to recognize that whatever we do, we're always going to be under attack. We certainly appreciate that these days from the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, uh, North Koreans, and others. And you have to modulate yourself and recognize that it's a day-to-day -day battle. It's never going to go away, just like uh, the fight against uh, terrorism. A long, long story in American history, going back to our first 
intelligence network in Boston in 1775, which the British penetrated. Benjamin Church was the senior medical officer in the Continental Army and a British agent working against the mechanics ring in Boston. Benedict Arnold, a well-known story, the classic disgruntled officer, and an indication that even some very reputable uh, intelligence practitioners such as George Washington could misread uh, their trusted allies. If we move into the 20th century, we find uh, some interesting data points. Uh, this is just publicly available information. Of course, the true number of foreign agents and Americans working uh, for hostels is higher than that. We can't acknowledge all of them for various reasons. And then you have all of the revelations that came out of the Venona decryptions, the Soviet uh, KGB communications to and from the United States that were intercepted and decrypted starting uh, in the uh, mid-1940s disclosed an enormous amount of Soviet penetration dating back pretty much to the time when diplomatic relations were restored in 1933. These people penetrated almost every element of the national security apparatus. You know, of course, about the atomic bomb spies, but it's far more broad than that. You had influence agents at very high levels of the government. The Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Harry Dexter White, was an influence agent. Uh, Lawrence Duggan, who possibly could have become vice president under, or secretary of state, rather, under Henry Wallace, was a Soviet asset. Bill Donovan's uh, executive assistant, Duncan Lee, a Soviet asset, on and on it goes. An enormous amount of Soviet hostile activity. And because it was wartime, we weren't doing much uh, to defend ourselves against it. When we look at a particular period of time, 1975 to uh, uh, the mid-2000s, we find an indication of just how pervasive the hostile intelligence attack has been throughout the national security apparatus. You can see it's top-heavy against uh, military. Uh, that's because, of course, the military is much bigger. It's worldwide, a much easier target. Lots of potential vulnerabilities in it, especially among lower-ranking personnel. But it's throughout the government, as you can see. Uh, even including, of course, the contracting community uh, and even uh, some agencies that aren't directly involved in national security but are still considered uh, good targets. The agency itself uh, penetrated uh, substantially over the years. Uh, this is a sort of snapshot of the human condition. If you want to think of a motivation for espionage, it's up here uh, in the rogues gallery. Some of these are well known to you, of course, uh, Ames and Howard and Nicholson, uh, others perhaps less so. Uh, regrettably, we had two convictions uh, this past summer, Mallory and Lee from the Chinese angle. But you can find here a variety of motivations uh, in tradecraft. Uh, you have uh, people who are in it for greed or need. You have uh, psychological issues. Uh, emotional instability, ideological epiphany. Uh, a couple of individuals were deliberate uh, penetrations. Carl Kocher down there on the lower left was a Czech illegal whom the agency picked up as a translator. Uh, that's always been historically a vulnerability, both for U.S. intelligence and the U.S. military, not having a broad enough linguistic pool of talent to draw on, having to rely on locals or liaison to do translations, document exploitation, debriefings, interrogations. If you can plant somebody inside that part of your operation, 
you're doing pretty well in disrupting uh, the the hostile service, and that's exactly what Carl Kocher did, uh, caused uh, the breakup of a couple of uh, important operations. Larry Chin there in the center served as a Chinese agent for 30 years. He was hired as one, and he retired as one, even walked off with a distinguished retirement medallion uh, while probably sniggering that uh, they, they haven't caught me yet. Thankfully, he was caught through a penetration of the Chinese MSS, and that's one of the touchstones for good counterintelligence is you find out who these people are most reliably by penetrating uh, the enemy service. One of the elements of the Ames investigation that impaired it for a number of years was the refusal to recognize that that is the preeminent way to find out about how uh, you have been penetrated. And the most likely source of information compromises comes from human sources. Venona, which was a communications uh, interception success, that's really the outlier here. Most of the time, you'll find that it's somebody inside or somebody who's working against you from the outside through human means that is causing the disruption. I want to briefly touch on some of the main elements of Angleton's career, though I, I don't want to dwell on it. And we don't have enough time this morning. But the, the key point here I want to leave you with as we quickly page through here is that Angleton's record is much more complicated than the stereotype you find in the literature and even in some movies and books. Uh, he's been portrayed as paranoid, as completely ruining Soviet operations, as being, in effect, as disruptive uh, to U.S. intelligence as a real spy would have been. I think this, these are overstatements. The record does not justify that. You can read my interpretation uh, in Studies in Intelligence. The key point I want to make about Angleton is that while he was going through his efforts to track down the mole and developing a conception of how the Soviets were managing uh, their double agent and defector and false recruit program to deceive the West because it was so desperate for information, that he not only knew from his own experience that such a major type of strategic deception could work through knowledge of the uh, Normandy deceptions. He was in OSS X2 at the time and was witting of all of this. But also the history of Soviet intelligence, being able to run major deception operations against Western services twice within a 30-year period using almost the same kind of tradecraft, and we got tricked both times. He also knew from intelligence history, about which he was probably more profoundly knowledgeable than anybody else in U.S. intelligence, that the Soviets could run major networks in hostile territory, that many of our early operations, both clandestine and covert, were blown through penetrations. He was one of the first agency officers read into the Venona material, and what a revelation that was to him. And then he himself was duped by his so-called professional friend, uh, Kim Philby. He also realizes through the defector Galitzin that the Soviets are now on the attack. They are no longer just using intelligence for defensive regime stability purposes, but trying to disrupt uh, enemy services as well. And the record is very clear in the early 1960s that they've been quite successful at doing so. Year after year, a major spy scandal somewhere in either the U.S. or uh, the uh, Western or, or Western allies. So with that track record, 
not knowing the contrary, because we've lost all of our human and technical assets, SIGINT assets particularly, uh, against Soviet intelligence, we have to presume penetration and then go find it. We have no alternative. And that's where the mole hunt starts, which is the legacy of Angleton, though it didn't bring him down directly in 1974. That was because of a couple of domestically oriented operations. But rather, the mole hunt is what has stigmatized him and ultimately stigmatized counterintelligence when he left. He was able to find the mole, but the mole was gone, uh, fired because of so-called incompetence. Actually, the mole was working on the Soviet's behalf, and that's why all of his cases were blown. Now, looking overall at Angleton's record, I would say it's a net negative. Uh, he did some very good things, especially keeping good relations with the FBI at a time when Hoover and our leadership uh, did not like one another. And he did take his pursuit of moles overseas and help uncover others with regrettably some collateral damage along the way. But that's regrettably also part of the counterintelligence business. But a couple of lessons that all counterintelligence officers can carry with them into the present is don't blind yourself to other threats. Don't become tunnel vision, boresighted on one threat, which was Angleton's preoccupation, the KGB. You have to realize that everybody's after us. And the only way we're going to protect ourselves reliably from that is to be much more offensive. Angleton is, as you can tell, defensively oriented. He's spy hunting, but he's not engaged in the offensive side of the business. The problem to me, which gets back to that earlier point about the American culture not being able to modulate uh, security and liberty terribly well, is that we lurched in the wrong direction after Angleton and uh, debased counterintelligence and security across the U.S. government. Uh, nobody wants to work at CI anymore because it's a bad place to go. It's a place to park your troubled personnel, your low performers, and it's you have leadership churn. And eventually you get this mindset that if Angleton did it, we're going to go in the other direction. And that, I think, is one reason why you serious security problems uh, in U.S. intelligence coming out in ultimately the year of the spy. It greatly troubled our oversight committees looking back on that series of uh, revelations about hostile intelligence that counterintelligence was largely broken during that period of time. Now, it was even worse than that, though, because of the 12 roughly hostile uh, agents who were arrested or exposed, three times as many were still operating at that time and were not known about. And this is displayed very graphically here in this diagram that our counterintelligence center, as it was then called in 1985, put out. It's called, of course, the iceberg graph. You can see above the water, the blue lines, the ones who were uncovered in 1985, more or less. It started in late 84, went into 86. And you notice how long a number of them were operating like Chin and Walker. But look below. This is the really troubling part. These are all operatives who first were not caught in 1985. And look at how long some of them continued to operate, including some very damaging ones, like the Myerses at State Department. Uh, Katrina Leung at the FBI, uh, Clyde Lee Conrad went on for a while, uh, Tropimov, and of course you have within that group Ames and Hansen as well. The last point I want to make here is 
A lot of times in counterintelligence, you get so preoccupied with specific cases that you lose your strategic perspective. And if we think about 1985 at a time when U.S.-Soviet relations were in the dumps and talk of war was uh, in the wind, think about this. If the worst had happened and we went to conflict with the Soviets, look at all of the intelligence assets that they had running at that time. And some of them went back for quite a while, as you can see from their start dates. They had insights into all of this information. And if we had gone to war, this is what would have happened. The Soviets would have known all of these major areas of information about our military plans ahead of time and our collection capabilities ahead of time knowing what we knew, knowing what we didn't, knowing how we could be misled. It could have been like uh, the equivalent of the Normandy invasion all over. And we didn't have anything on the other side anywhere as good. Kuklinski, our principal source in the Warsaw Pact, had been rolled up a few years before. We had nothing going similar to what they had against us. So sort of the uh, the moral of the story here is, uh, realize that counterintelligence is an essential part of everything that an intelligence service does. Going back to Angleton's uh, kind of fundamental point, it must be built into any foreign intelligence or counter covert action operation that you run. It cannot be brought in after problems start to emerge. And as we're looking ahead into what's been going on since the end of the Cold War, we find some interesting trends, and I'll close with uh, this. Uh, particularly as we're moving into the global war on terror after 2001, we have a, a different sense of the type of people who are working against us. If you look at the history of motivation in intelligence, you find that in the 40s and 50s and even in, well into the 60s, it was mostly ideological. Then as you move from the 60s into the 70s and 80s, it becomes more mercenary. Now we're lurching back more toward the uh, the isms that are motivating people. But it's not communism. Hardly anybody believes in that anymore. It's really nationalism, religion, irredentism, sectarianism, uh, ethnic orientation. Whatever the worldview is, this is what seems to be motivating more. And this isn't absolute, but it's the trend line I'm talking about here, motivating more people to do this. More of them are civilians than they used to be. Most of them are doing it without taking money. And the real problem here is uh, the motivation of the divided loyalty, kind of a half your heart is where you came from or in your belief system, half your heart is with the United States where you're trying to make your life. And this tension is causing people to eventually decide that they have to go with what they used to know and used to believe uh, instead of where they are now. Last point is uh, the changing nature of espionage. Back in the old days when espionage was conducted in that kind of Hollywood fashion with somebody going into an office in the middle of the night and opening a safe and photographing documents and putting them back, that created a kind of a drip, drip, drip loss of information because you couldn't do that every night and you couldn't, especially in certain operational environments, hand that information off to your handler regularly. So you would save it up, give it to them periodically. And the, the operational loss, the information loss, was sort of uh, slow and steady. Those individuals, though, were harder to catch because they could, uh, security was not intense and they could often evade it. Uh, 
in the digital realm, you kind of flip all that. You can release a huge amount of information very quickly, as we've seen through some of these major leak dumps recently. But because of digital tracking, you're more likely to get caught sooner, which has enabled us to roll up uh, a number of those uh, perpetrators much quicker than we could uh, sort of using old school uh, espionage. All right, I'll, I'll end there and um, hope I can come back at another time and maybe delve deeper into the Angleton uh, period. I've written about him and consider him a, a fascinating and misunderstood individual. But uh, for now, um, I'll be happy to, to take a couple of questions. Thank you, David. That's a great review of a very complex um, subject. Um, I was delighted to have David on today, uh, not only because he's the gold standard for um, government historians, um, but because um, his information is really uh, foundational. And I hope in future uh, programs to have um, several former counterintelligence officers on to talk about uh, individual cases. I also have the highest regard for uh, the center, uh, and I'm very happy to say that uh, over the years, AFIO has uh, enjoyed an excellent relationship, and we have collaborated on a number of programs and projects and even um, co-sponsored uh, several events. David, we'd love to have you back um, for another session. I find uh, the idea of an Anglican session particularly um, uh, interesting. Um, do you want to give our viewers um, a couple of ideas of other topics that you have that have been um, prepared and pre-cleared that you could also prevent, present? Sure, glad to. Um, another one of the areas that I concentrate on at the history staff is covert action. And I teach a class at Georgetown, have done so for over 10 years, on both counterintelligence and covert action. So I have lots of uh, pre-cleared material in the covert action realm that uh, I can talk about. Uh, and I would very much uh, enjoy doing that. Another area that I've concentrated on is the leadership of the agency, the directors and their relationships with U.S. presidents. Um, again, I can uh, bring that uh, to bear, too. It's certainly a timely topic and one that uh, is uh, endlessly interesting, looking for various kinds of ways to predict how presidents will use the agency based on the type of leader they put in charge of it. It really does become a kind of a, a metric uh, or a predictive uh, factor. Um, you know, you touched upon um, the large amount of information that is already um, declassified and um, publicly available on the CIA website, much of which uh, the center has played um, uh, an instrumental role in um, researching, writing, and declassifying. You want to give our viewers just some kind of high points of categories of information that they could find if they have the time and interest? Yeah, between the CIA.gov uh, Center for the Study of Intelligence site and the Freedom of Information Act electronic reading room that is also there on CIA.gov, you'll find an enormous amount of information. Uh, on the CSI site, we have publications and document collections on a range of topics dealing with uh, Soviet uh, weapons matters during the Cold War. We have unclassified publications on various sorts of Cold War events. Uh, we have a publication about the A-12 uh, reconnaissance aircraft. There's lots and lots of different publications. And then all of the back issues of the unclassified 
material from studies and intelligence uh, is also there. On the Freedom of Information Act website, uh, which regrettably is a little bit clumsy to use in, in, with its search engine, but if you're dogged enough, you can work your way through it. You'll find uh, bundled collections of released documents on a huge range of subjects and collections of our declassified, formerly classified histories, such as Tom Ahern's multi-volume history of CIA in Southeast Asia. Uh, another place to look, too, is um, in the publications section of CIA.gov. You'll find this all under the library tab, and when it pulls down, you'll see publications, Center for the Study of Intelligence, and Freedom of Information Act Reading Room. In the publications section is a collection of, again, bundled declassified document collections that the uh, information management services staff put out, often in collaboration with the history staff, on various subjects uh, running a gamut of Cold War, international relations, intelligence history, uh, leadership topics, uh, a lot of great material. The publications are online digitally, and then if you're interested, you can probably get a hard copy by requesting it through the agency. That will have a CD that you can use uh, and load into your machine. Uh, very, very good collections for uh, studies, uh, research. I recommend them all to my students uh, continually. You know, it always amazes me how much um, information is now available to the public. Um, when I think about uh, when I joined the agency about 50 years ago, um, there was very, very uh, little public information, very few books, uh, very little written about the CIA. And today it's just amazing how much information you actually find on the agency website alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's very hard just to keep up with all of the literature on intelligence that's constantly coming out. Thank goodness we have somebody like Hayden Peake to uh, review dozens of books for us every year. Uh, I can't obviously read them all. I have four of them right now that just came out on my nightstand. I'm trying to plow through them, uh, but that's uh, always been a challenge, and it's a good thing. I'm glad we have too much to read than too little. The question, of course, then becomes one of quality and focus. We don't need any more Legacy of Ashes by Tim Weiner. We need real quality scholarship, and thankfully most of it is of that caliber. Yeah. Well, you've given us a great review today. I'm sure our uh, viewers will be very interested, and we look forward to having you uh, back with AFIO uh, now again in the very near future. Great. Thank you very much, Jim, for inviting me. Mm -hmm.